How many of you here serve on at least one board? How many of you are thinking about starting something where you would have to have a board? Oh, okay. So you, you have maybe boards or you serve on boards. And uh, so this is relevant information. And if you have done much already in the way of serving on boards, you know that it can be a pretty complex situation a lot of times. So we won't solve all those complexities today. We'll talk about a few things. So what are the basic responsibilities of a board and the legal duties of board members? Well, let's look at three areas. Standards of conduct. First of all, as a board member, you have a duty of care. You must exercise reasonable care when you make decisions for the organization. Reasonable is what the court would define as something that a reasonable thinking, prudent person might do in a similar situation, okay? Reasonable care, the duty of reasonable care. You have the duty of reasonable care. Now, in the situation we mentioned earlier, it became, it came, uh, one of the things that the state was alleging is that there had not been reasonable care. There had not been, all the decisions that were made were not made under this reasonable care situation. And so you never know what you're going to face, and so you should always exercise reasonable care. And we'll talk more about this later, but some of the specific things, you as a board member need to learn how to ask good questions. And if you're not asking good questions, you're not going to get good answers, okay? And sometimes even if you ask good questions, you don't get good answers, and you must learn how to ask good questions repeatedly <laughs> until you are satisfied because you are in somewhat of a position serving on a board. All right? Secondly, you have a duty of loyalty. Board members, uh, it says here, an interesting term, must never use information gained through his or her position for personal gain. We call it um, conflict of interest. And some of the boards I serve on, every year I have to sign a conflict of interest statement. And I have to say what my conflict of interest might be. For instance, for the ASI board, we have a conflict of interest statement that includes a list of all the other organizations and boards you serve on because there is always a concern that a person serving on the ASI board could have a conflict of interest and unduly promote a certain organization on which, whose board they serve. So you must say, okay, I serve on this board, this board, and this board. So if that topic comes up, they know I serve on these boards and I could have a conflict of interest. I could care about that organization and say, hey, let's really help that person more than others maybe. So have to be careful with that. All right, duty of loyalty. You can't use that information for wrong purposes. Duty of obedience. Now, this is an interesting term, duty of obedience, because we think of obedience in maybe a different way. But So try to understand the nuance of this. We're not necessarily talking about obedience to um, a certain set of rules or regulations, but we're talking about faithfulness to the organization's mission. And um, it would prevent you from acting in a way that is inconsistent with the organization's goals. Let's, let's see if we can think of an example of that. 
Uh, easy one would be you serve on, the, on your local church board and you leave the local church board and you go down to the local saloon. You are acting inconsistently with your organization's goals, right? Now, that's a very blatant example. You left board meeting on Wednesday night after prayer meeting and you went down to the local saloon. To oh. <laughs> Yes, indeed, to witness. Okay, so... Uh, sometimes, a good point, you could be perceived as acting in conflict or inconsistent with the organization's goals when in reality you may not be. So there are certainly times when that could happen. But uh, so standards of conduct, very important. You have a duty of care, duty of loyalty, duty of obedience. And why would you want to be a part of an organization or be on their board if you were not in harmony with their mission anyway? I guess there could be reasons. It would be hard for me to imagine why I would want to help an organization that I didn't believe in what they were doing. If that's the bottom line of it, unless you had ulterior motives and, and of something, I don't know what they would be. All I know is that board work is hard work. And, and usually when you go to board meeting, you're tired after you get out, even if you didn't do anything. Uh, so um, I'm not thinking that it would be uh, a good thing to be out of harmony with your the mission of the organizations you serve. How about responsibilities? All right, board responsibilities. So this is key. This is critical. The board has a responsibility to establish the mission and purpose for the organization. Now, I know I've talked uh, to some of you, uh, even here in this room, and you said, my board is really small. I talked to someone yesterday, and they're not here today, but they said, my board is really informal. I just have a couple of family members on my board. My antennas start going up real quick. I'm thinking, this organization, I know them. They have a great organization, and they're growing, and God is blessing them. But they have some work to do to develop their board. Because right now, they have a very weak situation with several family members on the board and the organization growing so quickly. So they need to invite some people in to help them, some people with expertise. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how you formulate a board. Okay, so you have to, the board has the responsibility to select the executive director. The board has the responsibility to support and evaluate the executive director. So whoever is the um, president or executive director of the organization should be evaluated by the board on a regular basis, annually or at least every two years. And so this is one of the responsibilities of the board. The board has the responsibility to set policies and ensure effective planning. It has the responsibility to monitor and strengthen programs and services. It has the responsibility to ensure adequate financial resources. It has the responsibility to protect assets and provide proper financial oversight. It has the res uh, responsibility to build a competent board so it's like this. The board is responsible for itself. So that's a hard one. And ensure legal and ethical integrity and to enhance the organization's public standing. That's a long list. Yes, John. Ah, 
Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about that. What are the tools for uh, supporting and at the same time evaluating? Okay, uh, you're, you're just talking about this one up here, support and evaluate the, dire uh, the uh, executive director. Okay, so um, I have <coughs> worked on two boards where we have developed an instrument where we evaluate the performance of the president or executive director. So we use an instrument and all the board members fill out this and then those survey results are tabulated. And during the board meeting, we have given this information to the board members and we've given the summary information to the president and we uh, have a discussion about how the board uh, executive director of the organization is doing. How effective are they being? Okay. Um, this little word here is also true though even though it seems like it might be two different things, we have a responsibility to support that person. Let's say that person is weak in a certain area. Certainly we throw them out because that is a duty of the board, right? But I'll tell you, leaders are hard to find. You're better off to develop them and support them and encourage them and pray with them and send them to school if necessary or send them to some special seminars somehow if they're if, if, if they're in the reasonable range, try to develop them and help them because it's hard to find leadership. That's a reality. I don't know about your organizations, but for the ones I'm acquainted with, there's a big vacuum that could suck up a lot of leadership talent if it was available. Okay? So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an important thing, without a doubt, that we evaluate as well as support. So how does the board ensure the organization is mission driven and 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 I will say this uh, from an, an experience that I have had and that is without a proper mission the board's going to do a lot of work but it's probably not going to go very far that's my personal evaluation of how boards work you're going to work really hard and you're going to hear a lot of reports and you're going to do a lot of things, and it's going to appear that there's a lot of activity even going on. Could be a lot of activity going on, but not much progress. Because you may be working towards different ideas of what should be done. So the board has a, a responsibility, you noted, in the, to establish. Number one, it was what? Establish the mission and the purpose. And so now looking at that, it also, the board has an, a duty, a responsibility to ensure that the organization is mission-driven, that everything you do is focused on accomplishing the mission for which that organization exists. And if it's not, you're in trouble. Okay? So the board can develop opportunities to keep board members communicating. Members should be engaged in moving your mission forward. Keep the lines of communication open between board members and the executive director to ensure buy-in at all levels and shared understanding of your common purpose. Every board member should be able to know and understand the mission statement of every organization they serve with. Sure. And, and questions are fine at any time. Raise your hand. We're okay. All right? Well, I will give you my experience on this. Two things. Okay, let me repeat the question. She was wondering at what point should a leader be replaced basically that's the essence of the question how do you know when a leader should be replaced 
I've seen boards fail on both sides of this. I've seen them kick people out that should have still been serving, in my opinion. And I've seen them let people stay to the end that were just driving the organization into the ground. And it was obvious. Okay, so there's two different roads. Here is the key to this. Setting up the expectation and measuring against that expectation. And when the director or president of the organization is not meeting the expectation and they have been counseled with and worked with and they may themselves understand their failure and say, this is beyond me and I need to go somewhere else. Okay, that's a logical end to service. But if it comes to the point where they don't understand that and you still have to help them out, then the board has the responsibility. If they wait too long, they can hurt the organization. If they go too early, they can hurt the organization. So it's a very fine balance. There's no hard and fast rules. If they're rating 62%, they go. If they're rating 63%, they stay. No, I don't don't go that way, but I do go set the expectations up clearly, measure by those expectations, counsel the person where they're short, train them, help them, and if they're able to, if they have a good positive attitude and willing to work towards accomplishing the mission, use them. But on the other hand, if they're not accomplishing the mission on a whole bunch of areas and they know that, they're probably going to say, hey, I'm out of here. I need to do something else. Or I had one individual who said, I want to stay in this organization and help, but I can't be the president. I can't be the president. My skill set is not for that. I need to do something else. Is there anything else I could do here? So they were in support of the mission of the organization, but they just, they recognized it wasn't working. But it only really happens that way if you have clear expectations and you have set this thing up for success. Okay, Um, I think this comes up somewhere else, but let me say it right now in case it doesn't. Every board should have done a planning process that clearly sets out the goals and objectives for that organization. If you have no goals, you're probably not going to get there. So if you don't have clearly set out goals and objectives for your organization, you should do that. Yes, it takes time. It takes energy. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you have a, uh, you have a system where you lay it out and there are certain objectives and, and, and you know, you can, you can, and for smaller organizations it's hard. I understand that. And sometimes you just got to run by the seat of your pants and hope somebody will help you. Because you're so small, there's only you and one other person, and you're doing all the work, and you can't do all that at the same time. And so God's going to have to help you to do the important things until you can grow a little bit, and he blesses you with, you know, some some other help there. Okay, so we have to be careful that we don't apply everything in a large corporate setting, because I know many of you are in very small ministries. You're operating under situations that probably are difficult from the standpoint of uh, size and funds and resources and a whole bunch of things. Okay. Ask the board to regularly review communication and fundraising plans to ensure they tie in with its mission and strategic goals. This keeps them tied into critical organizational activities. So the board should regularly review to make sure everything is supporting the mission of the organization. Okay. Don't let your mission drift. Potential support from large donors or corporate sponsors can sometimes result and taking on programming that is not in line with your mission. You have a donor that comes by, says, I know you have an orphanage, but what I would like to see you do is start a butterfly farm, and I'm going to give you a million dollars to do it. 
Sure, we'll start a butterfly farm for a million dollars. We'd be happy to do that. The orphan kids can go out there and look at the butterflies every day. But you know, that's not in harmony with your mission. You know? And if you're starting a butterfly farm when you're supposed to be serving the kids, you probably have made a mistake, and your organization is going to struggle with that. And the donor's probably not going to be happy either because that's not your mission. You're working all day taking care of these orphans, and then over here on the side is this butterfly farm you're trying to figure out how to take care of, and you're in trouble, okay? So make sure that donors stay on track with your mission and that they're supporting your mission, not their own mission, okay? It is. It is the board's. Uh, the question is, is it the board's responsibility to work in the donor field? Yes. And to make clear expectations to the donors? Yes. And if that's not happening, uh, they need to hold the accountable. If there's a development director or if there's a president who's functioning and not doing the clear expectation thing with the donor, yes, we'll accept your million dollars, but we're not going to build a butterfly farm. We're going to invest it in feeding these orphans or whatever. And if they say no, Give them their money back. Um, okay, so we could do a fundraising course today, but um, no, it's okay because it's all tied together. So I'm just going to give you a few little things and then recommend that you call Lilia Wagner, who is the fundraising expert, and um, she will help you actually. So, but um, yes. You can create written arrangements with donors. And in large gifts, sometimes that's very appropriate. And even in smaller gifts, depending on the organization, they, the donor may want something. Basically, in a, in a donor relationship, you want to meet the needs of that donor if you can. Okay? You want to encourage them to be in favor with your cause, but you have to meet their need or you're not going to have a repeat donation. Okay? If they bring money to the table and give you money for a bus and you go buy bicycles with it, they're going to come back and be unhappy. Okay? John. I would think that what your comment was, that's really a lack of integrity if you deliberately do that. Yeah. But at the same time, I work with that on our mission. On our donor envelopes, we have a disclaimer, which we have to put there because of the IRS, that says funds Very true, very true. Had to be very careful. It's a, it's a, it's a, a field of landmines, is what it is. There is potential for disaster on all hands, <laughs> so you have to be careful. Okay, um, you want to guard against unclear or misguided mission. So you need to ask yourself uh, some questions. What's the social benefit gained by our organization's existence, and existence, and how important is it? And does our mission have meaning for stakeholders, or is it just boilerplate for grant applications? Is your mission real? Okay. 
And do we know our organization's competitive advantage or who our constituents are? And so these are just some general questions to make sure that you're not getting off mission basis, okay? Is there a purpose? Is, is there some benefit gained by your organization's existence? And is it an important benefit, okay? And making sure that it actually has, your mission has meaning and uh, to those who care about your organization. Stakeholders means parents for us. Let me say it in a school setting. Stakeholders for us means parents, it means students, it means teachers, it means board members, it means donors, it means church members, it means a lot of people. Because we're in the business of educating young people. These people, parents, they're part of our stakeholder group. We want to make sure our mission has meaning for them. And so you want to make sure that your mission has meaning for your stakeholders. Okay, what are some of the best practices for board operation? All right, so what size should your board be? And if you, if you want to um, look in your uh, document here, there's, uh, th there's a few more words here, but let's just talk about this. In most states, you have to have at least three members. A president, a secretary, and a treasurer. Okay, In most states, you have to have those three officers, three board members. And they, the officers and board members can be the same people, but you, most states you have to have those three. Okay? You should probably have more than three, and they should probably not all be related. Well, it's me and my wife and my daughter. Um, not the best equation, okay? So you need to be careful. So how many do I recommend? Yes. Ah, we're going to talk about that too in just a minute. What would the makeup of the board look like on a good board? Okay, uh, but let's think about this, the number. Um, how about four? Would that be enough? Or five, or six, or seven, or eight, or nine, or ten? On our board at our institution, we have 15 members. We've designated ourselves to have 15 members, and what we do is we rotate them every their term of service is three years. They're going to serve for three-year term. So we have, in one year, one-third of the board expires. So five members expire one year. The next year, five more members' term expire. And the next year, five more members' terms expire. So we have a one-third, one-third, one-third. Five members expire each year. And they're either reelected or replaced on terms of rotating uh, terms like that. So you always have only one-third of your board expiring in any given year, okay? And so that's, that's just the way that we do it. I'm not saying that everybody has to do it that way, but that's the way we do it. It does. Yep. It affects a whole bunch of things, but you know what? You should not ever make lifetime board members. If you put in your documents that we have three lifetime board members and that's all it's ever going to be, your organization is going to suffer and ultimately die. Okay? You have to be bringing new people into your board and looking for those people who want to engage. And when people have demonstrated they don't want to engage, you let them go off your board. Okay, what time is it? I, I, I think we're going to have 4 o'clock. We have 40, 
four more minutes to finish, okay? And there's probably too much material, so we may not cover it all, but fortunately I've given you the handout. But so down there at the end, we may have to race through a little bit of it kind of at the end, but I, most of the points in here have some level of importance. And this is, people spend years studying this, and you can get a doctor's degree in, in nonprofit management and board issues, so don't think we're going to learn everything today, but we'll talk about some important things that hopefully will help you. Uh, what's a quorum? What kind of quorum should your board have? In, in our board, we require a majority, which means more than half. So if eight of our members are present, we can do business. If seven of our members are present, we can't do business. Okay? So that's a requirement that's usually specified in your bylaws. How many quorum you have is up to you. Um, there should be effective meeting planning. I showed up at a board meeting one time, and the chairman of the board said, well, and I had probably driven four or five hours to get to this board meeting. And I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, drove 4 or 5 hours to get there by a 9 or 10 o'clock meeting, and he shows up at the meeting, and he says, I really didn't prepare an agenda. How does that make the board member feel? He said, did I just waste my day? Because I drove here 4 or 5 hours, I'm going to sit here in this meeting with no agenda and talk about things that have no meaning for the next 3 or 4 hours. I'm going to get back in my car, I'm going to drive another 4 or 5 hours home. I spent a 14-hour day, and what did I do? A little bit of nothing because there was no agenda, and it's just, I go, like, what? <laughs> Did not prepare an agenda. This is not even reasonable, okay? So you should have, if you're going to have a board and it's going to be effective, you have to do effective meeting planning. You better have an agenda. You better have reports. You better have things in order. And when your board members show up, then they feel valued, and they said, I showed up, and they gave me an agenda, and had everything straightened out, all my reports were together, and we didn't just talk about what the weather was today. We had important discussions that are going to steer this organization in the right direction. They go home, they want to come back another time. They want to help you more, okay? Um, executive directors and founders as members. Be careful with this. I know we're small organizations, most of us, and we're not the big guys. It's okay. But it's an issue where we have to be a little careful. I would just tell you this. In my organization, I sit on the board. I am the director of the school. I'm the president of the corporation, and I sit on the board. And several other of our employees sit on the board. What we try to do in our institution is have more than half of our members off campus, we call them. So we have about half of our members that are on campus kind of people and we have, try to have half or more that are off-campus kind of people, okay, so that the, there's some balance to it. It's not as healthy as I would like it to be, but it's the way we do it. So I'm just being very transparent with you today. I'm giving you my experience. I can tell you that some things work well, some things don't work well. It depends on who you have on that board that are on-campus people, whether this is going to work or not. Michael runs a school. He knows what I'm talking about. You can derail yourself by having too many on-campus people. <laughs> or sometimes you can derail yourself by having too many off-campus people, okay? It can go both ways, all right? Uh, term limits. Definitely you should have term limits. Nobody should be a lifetime member. If they fail to perform, they need to be off, okay? Uh, board committees. There should be board committees that are functional and helping to bring reports and information and planning ideas to the board 
so that the board is not sitting there doing all the work in the board meeting. Most of this work should be done outside of the board meeting. They should bring a report to the board meeting. The items they have found and discussed should be brought as recommendations. The board discusses it. They buy them or they don't buy them. That's good. That's good practice. But if the board is trying to come up with recommendations to solve a problem while they're sitting there, they're not going to do the best work because it's not, they don't have the time and energy and you get frustrated at some point and you say, look, let's just do something. Even if it's wrong, let's do something. And so it's better to have committees that are bringing information to the board. Uh, board orientation, you should let your board members know what you expect. There should be a session of orientation. And uh, I joined one board. I was so happy when I joined that board because they sent me a document and they said, Mr. Dickman, we're inviting you to be a member of our board. And before we, you say yes, we want you to read this document. It describes the term of service. It describes what your responsibilities are going to be. It describes what our responsibilities are going to be. It tells me how many meetings a year you're going to have. And it tells me that, you know, how many committees they expect me to sit on, what the time frame is they expect me to invest, and will you, are you willing to serve? I said, whew, this is amazing. Never had this before. I like this. They told me what they expected on the front end. And I said, I said, yeah, I can do that. I might not be able to do everything, but I can do that much. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point. In this case, it was not a financial commitment they were expecting. And uh, so, uh, but you have to explain that as well. And, and sometimes in our institutions, most of our institution settings, and, and some of you have assigned board members. John, is that true for you? Yeah. I mean, just somebody, there's certain ones that are just assigned and you have them whether you like them or not. I mean, I know, I, uh, okay, so that's good. But in some cases, I know that there is assigned board members. They're assigned there by another organization to represent things, and, and it's just the way it is, and you take them whether you like them or not, and they may or may not contribute, and you try to engage with them, and it's, you know, so there are complicating factors. But if there's a financial commitment expected, make that clear in the front end. We expect all of our directors to donate something every year. Make that clear. We want 100% engagement of our board members financially with our organization. That's a standard we hold, and we hold that standard because when we engage with other donors, we want to be able to tell them all of our board members are engaged financially with us. It's a good thing, but not all organizations require it, so you can decide. Okay, uh, definitely executive director evaluations need to be a part of the best practice for your board. And I could add several to this, uh, a board's self-evaluation as well and other things. So the list is not complete by any means, but these are some of the best practices for board operation. Okay? Um, let's see here. Where are we going now? Let's. Okay, where do we find board members? I heard this question yesterday. Somebody, I don't know if it was this young lady over here or one of you. Oh, uh, yes, Linda was asking me, where do we find Sandra? was asking me, where do we find board members? So let's just look at this. Um, and, and what kind of makeup would you consider for a board? Okay, so this gives us some ideas. One-third should be individuals who have access to financial resources or soliciting donations. That would be ideal. That would be nice if one-third of your board 
had access or had the ability to access people who could contribute to your organization. One third would be individuals with management expertise in areas of financial, marketing, legal, and the like. Okay, so here we have about a third of the people should have some expertise in the area in which, you, you, okay, you said should you have a lawyer on your board? Well, yeah, you want some legal expertise on your board if possible. You want some financial expertise on your board if possible. You want some marketing expertise on your board if possible. Okay, are you ever going to get all those things? Probably not. <laughs> Reality, probably not. But you get what you can. Invest to, with these people to get what you can. Okay, it's hard to find board members. I'll just tell you that. It's hard to find board members. People are willing to serve, willing to engage, and willing to do things. Okay, and the other third would be individuals possibly connected in the community with expertise in your service field. Okay, so, and we might broaden the word community. We are the Adventist community, right? So, one of the requirements, if you have an organization and you're a member of ASI, is that all of your board members be Seventh-day Adventist. So, bottom line, you've already reduced your pool of potential board members by quite a bit because you say they all have to be Adventist. Well, okay. So, you're starting there. And connected at the community level might mean connected within the Seventh-day Adventist church. The more connections you have, the better you can represent the organization, right? So it's important that some of your board members have this connection and some level of expertise in the field in which you work. I run a school. I want some people who have some educational experience on my board who maybe run other schools, and we invite each other to our different schools. I, I sit on a couple of schools, other schools' boards, and they sit on my board, and we exchange ideas, and we try to keep things working because we all fight the same battles. We're fighting these battles, trying to make effective work. And so we uh, help each other, and that's a good thing. So you want this expertise in your service field if you can have it. Okay, what role does your board chairman play, and what is their relationship with the executive director? If you run a board, you know what I'm talking about, the, the guy that sits up at the front of the meeting and says, um, all, all, all in favor, raise your right hand or say aye or whatever. That's your board chairman. So the board chairman, what role should he play and what relationship should he have with the executive director? Okay? Well, this is another complicated area. And, and I'm going to tell you that the... Um, the equation doesn't always work and is not always successful. But uh, if you have a successful mission-driven nonprofit, there's basically two things you're going to have in common for sure. You're going to have a strong executive director and you're going to have an engaged collaborative board chair. Okay? Take a deep breath and hope you can fulfill those two things. A strong executive director. That means the person who's doing the on-the-ground management of the organization day-to-day. -day. If that person is good and you've got a good board chairman, you have a good chance of success. Okay? If you've got a terrible executive director or a terrible board chairman, things can fall apart because the board can go awry very easily. I've sat on boards that have made bad decisions because the chairman didn't do his job. You say, wait, wait. That doesn't, you know, we're not making sense here. 
We've got to stop. We've got to think about this. We can't, we can't railroad this thing through. We, we want everybody's input. Somebody makes a motion, another guy seconds it, and, and before you know, something's down the track, and, and it's harder to back up than it is to pause things. So you need a good board chairman. All right. Um, your board chairman should be active, focused, supporting what's happening there at the board. Okay? Uh, important ways that the board chair and the executive director can work together. Partnering to make sure board resolutions are carried out. So the, the board just voted that the organization should purchase um, liability insurance. I'll just use that as an example. Maybe they didn't have enough liability insurance. The board voted that, and the, they said to the director, we want you to do this. We want you to carry out this thing. After the meeting, the director goes to the board chair and he says, I know the board told us to do this, but we can't do it. We don't have the money to do it. We don't have this to do it. The board chairman and the executive director sit down together, then they come up with a plan to engage some other people to help them or to do whatever so that when the next board meeting comes about, they report, we did what you told us to do. We got the job done. And everybody smiles because the board chairman and the director work together to help solve problems, okay? Uh, they can work together to appoint committees and chairmen, and who's going to serve on those different committees. Maybe you want a fundraising committee. Maybe you want an operations committee. The board chairman and the director work together to do those things. They should work together to prepare the agendas and that help the decisions to be made in a proactive way and carefully done, okay? So there's... Um, Yep, a whole bunch of things there they can work together on. Conducting new board member orientations and each acting as spokesperson when necessary. Okay? Uh, this is too small to read, but how do we get board members engaged for our cause? How do we get them to raise funds, in other words? Okay? So what things can you do to help your board members engage in actually supporting the cause of the organization, okay? So you get them involved. This little word right here is probably the most important word on the page. How do you get board members engaged in helping your cause? You get them involved in your cause. So for instance, if you live in Nepal and you want to get a board member to help you, you invite the board member to come to Nepal and you show them what you're doing and they see the problems on the ground. And if they have the capacity to help you, they probably will help you. And if they don't have the capacity to help you, don't invite them unless you just want to bring them there for a tour. And I mean, so you have to be careful, but I'm saying those are the kinds of things you can do. You involve them. You say, listen, I need you to come and I need you to help me do something. So we're going to go beyond that, just that involvement idea, and we say, you also want to involve in developing plans, annual fundraising campaigns. Involve your directors in that. Have them help you. Don't do it yourself. Don't do it all yourself. Communicate. Um, show the impact. You know the best way to raise money? Besides having relationships, I'll take your fundraising school here in the 30-second version. It's all about three things. Relationships, relationships, and relationships. 
right? That's your 30-second lesson today on fundraising. If you have friends, you can raise money because they're going to care about what you're doing and they're going to trust you. I had a lady tell me, you know what? The reason I'm giving you this donation is because I trust you. I go, oh, okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Praise the Lord. I appreciate the gift. But it scares me a little. Yeah, because then I have to go execute and I have to report to her. I have to show her what we did and tell her some stories about what happened with that money so that she trusts me again. So it's a, it's a lot about trust and building those trust relationships, okay? So create action plans. Give each board member a job. That gets them engaged and gets them involved. And communicate regularly with your board, okay? So how do we keep the board members communicating effectively? Well, focus the meetings on strategy, not just administration. I attend too many board meetings where we do the same thing every time. Okay, we're going to see the financial report. We're going to see the personnel report. We're going to see the da-da-da report. We're going to see the da-da-da. Listen, I want to come here. I want to do more than just hear some reports. I want to talk about what we're going to do with this organization in the next five years. What are we going to do? What kind of things can we do to advance God's work besides sit around here and report of what you did? So there's got to be a time for reporting. That's true. The board has to be informed. All this stuff can be sent out ahead of time. You spend some of your time doing that, and then you say, now we're going to do the real work. We're going to talk about how to advance the work of this organization in reality. Okay? So invite candid discussion. Oh, wrong button. Okay, candid discussion. Do you know some board meetings you can't say anything? I don't know if you sit on I sit on too many boards, so I have too many experiences to tell you, but... Some board means you go and you know you shouldn't say anything. And the reason you know you shouldn't say anything because somebody else is going to override that point very quickly or ignore that comment very quickly and move on from that point without proper consideration. So you're probably not going to serve in that board long anyway if that's the case. Um, I know of an organization, though, where the board members told me after the organization shut down, we had no voice. And I looked at them and I said, what do you mean you had no voice? Now, the organization was quite successful, actually. It came to the point, though, where it ended up closing rather quickly. And I looked and said, what? How did that happen? Where was the board? What were they doing? And began to come out that they had no voice. The executive director of the organization, the president of the organization, would come to the board meetings and he says, okay, I'm here to tell you guys what we're going to do. Here's our reports. Here's what we did. And here's what we're going to do. And nobody better ask any other questions about this because this is what we're going to do. So what? What do you mean? You had no voice. You're the board. You fire the guy. Well, yeah, but he started the thing. I don't care if he started it. You fire him. You say, excuse me, sir. I'd like to make a motion that we fire the executive director today. What? You know, somebody needed to be that brave, and they weren't. They weren't that brave to make that motion to get some discussion going. Sometimes you have to be radical a little bit to get some problem solved, and if the guy's being a dictator, then you have to stop him. And if you sit on boards where the executive director is a dictator, he probably needs to be taken off of that position, reality. Okay, anyway, invite candid discussion. This is the board chair's responsibility, really. So let me understand what you said. 
and you ask clarifying questions. So are you saying that we should have, be thinking about doing whatever it is? And the board member said, yeah, I think we should do that. Now, you invite people to actually discuss the problems, not to just gloss over them or run away from them. Okay, is your board too large? Uh, consider breaking up into smaller groups for discussion. Make it easier for boards to understand and act. Um, you know, talk about real issues, okay? All right, uh, what are bylaws and why do we need them? Well, bylaws are your marching orders. And if you don't have them, you're in trouble. I'll say it that way. You need a good, solid set of bylaws for your organization. Those describe how the board's going to operate and what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. The bylaws should state under whose rules you operate. How many of you were at the general conference this year and were there on Wednesday? Wasn't that beautiful? Wasn't that beautiful? The, the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the points of order were beautiful. <sighs> but they were necessary. Okay, it's necessary to have a system. At the end of the day, I thought, oh no, we're here for another couple of hours. This thing's going to get extended. We're here for another couple of hours. But, you know, it almost got derailed at the last minute. The vote almost got derailed. And I'm thinking, oh no, it's going to get derailed. We're going to have to stay in a couple of hours to see what happens, you know, how this whole thing's going to come out. And they're counseling together, and it came out, no, we're operating under these, uh, the bylaws of the. General Conference specified under what order they were going to operate. And yes, Robert's rules applied here, but it did not apply here. And they were able to move forward with the vote. And I said, oh, well, that's so neat to see something operate efficiently and effectively and be able to bring stuff to the table and have logic to it. All right, your bylaws are that. Uh, they're the written rules by which your organization is governed. They give your structure. They determine the rights of participants and the procedures by which your rights can be exercised. So they guide the board in conducting business. They have to be crafted carefully, or you can get your organization in trouble. So um, note, bylaws are legal documents. For instance, uh, it was a corporation that had a wonderful set of bylaws, but they didn't say what was going to happen when everything went out of business in their bylaws. And so there can be quite a squabble at the end of things if things don't go well. The organization shuts down. There's a couple million dollars worth of property that needs to be sold, and there's no indication in the bylaws about what's going to happen with those funds. Well, what do you think is going to happen? A lot of people are going to show up, and they're going to have a big discussion. <laughs> a board member may not have come for three years to board meeting, but they're going to show up on that day. And so uh, you have to be careful, Con you know, Put your bylaws together. Make them make sense. Um, there's three key uh, statements that have to be in your bylaws if you're an ASI member. One is, you're in the support of the mission and purposes of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's why you exist. Secondly, all your board members and officers and directors are going to be Seventh-day Adventists. Thirdly, if you ever go out of business, anything you have left over after you pay the bills goes to another Seventh-day Adventist organization. You have those three items in there. That's going to get the basics in place for you to be an ASI member. If you don't have those basics in place, probably not. Okay? All right. Bylaws help protect you as a director, an officer from personal liability. So your, uh, your nonprofit should protect you in the bylaws from uh, exposure to risk. Okay? So in some cases, you're required in the bylaws to indemnify directors and officers and to protect and defend them from loss or harm resulting from risk. 
in other cases, you're prohibited from doing so. You shouldn't belong to too many boards in California <laughs> because you're certainly liable, okay? <laughs> if you have a California corporation, there are some states it's, it's better to have a corporation in than others. I'll just tell you that. So if you're thinking about starting a nonprofit, look around and see which state you started in. Uh, and there's some that are more friendly than others toward that, okay? What about directors and operators insurance? Okay, it does two things. One, it directly reimburses directors for legal costs they incur, which the nonprofit cannot or will not pay. And it reimburses the nonprofit for costs it incurs in indemnifying directors. Well, let me tell you something. Some of the people on that board learned a hard lesson um, in this case with Miracle Meadows. The DNO insurance um, was in question. <laughs> and so there were some difficulties uh, in the, the, when the court says we want a $50,000 bond or we're not going to let you directors go anywhere out of state or whatever the case may be, you're suddenly in a bad position real quick. And so you need to ask a few questions. Does the policy automatically cover directors and officers who come on after the policy has taken effect? Does the policy provide for the advancement of funds to pay defense costs as they come due? Is there coverage for claims arising from events occurring before the beginning of the policy period? And does the policy provide coverage for employment practices, liability, and what are the limits and deductibles? Uh, another one of our institutions got taken to court by the Federal Department of Labor, lovely folks that they are. They had wonderful ideas. They took, uh, some of you know about the case, Lorbrook School, took them to court, sued them for um, whatever they had on the plate, plus a whole bunch more they didn't have. And um, yeah, they did not have, whoops, they did not have a policy for employment practices and liability, and all those costs for legal defense had to be borne by the institution itself. The reason for the lawsuit was the, the allegations were that, uh, of course, some of you know that in our supporting ministry schools, we believe in the balanced model of education, where young people um, are in the classroom half a day, they're in the vocational applied skills training half a day, and they were uh, uh, taking Lorbrook to court for putting the young people in position of work and calling it, they were calling it work instead of training. And so the state, was, the state was saying, all the things you're doing as young people is work. It's not training. And Lorenberg was alleging that it was a training program. And so there's a big legal battle. And it's a wonderful thing because God blessed and the school won the case. And in the end, they sued the federal government back and got uh, at least half their legal cost back. And so it was a blessing because it's a landmark case at the district level. The next level would have been the Supreme Court. And so... We have a landmark case at the district level which helps protect us from having to fight the, the people again. So, um, you know, it was a very difficult time, though. And if their employment, if their DNO policy would have had employment practices and liability, they would have been covered. So, anyway, you need to know some of these things. Even though you don't like to know them and you don't even want to ask the questions, you should know them. Okay? What are the limits and deductibles? Okay? If it's a million-dollar policy with a $50,000 deductible, well, you better have $50,000 nearby. That's all I can say. Yeah. 
Um, well, they could cost quite a bit, depending on your organization, how big you are, and what you do. It's all dependent on that. You have to fill out about a, uh, a ream of paperwork, and when you're done filling out that ream of paperwork, they'll ask you for two more, and when they're done with those, they'll tell you what it costs. Uh, if you want an exact quote, it's a very detailed, cumbersome process to go through because the insurance companies, of course, want to protect themselves and make money at the same time. So, uh, it, it should be the responsibility of the executive director at the direction of the board. And to the board says, uh, so what we did is brought our policy to the board and said, here's the policy. Uh, that we are purchasing and this is the coverage it has and we want you to know and now's the time to ask your questions. So, yes. All right, how do you deal with an ineffective board member? Take them to lunch and tell them not to come back. No, <laughs> uh, no really, you want to help turn your ineffective people into effective people. That's the goal, right? So, um, you want to think about why they might be ineffective. You wanted them on the board, you brought them in, and uh, they're just not clear on what is expected. So you didn't do the job. You didn't give them clarity on what was expected of them. And uh, maybe they're not comfortable with the assignment you gave them. Or maybe they've served too long and they're burned out. Or maybe it's not the right role. They maybe want to be some other role in the organization, not a board member, but help with some other role in the organization, okay? So if you have ineffective board members, ask some of those questions and try to figure it out and then help them find a new assignment or, yeah. So whatever the case, the board chairman has a problem. <laughs> it's not just the board chairman, the whole board has a problem if you have ineffective board members. So you need to clarify expectations and provide training, orientation, and coaching um, and try to avoid burning out your board members. So maybe the person's going to resign. That'll be an easy solution. Maybe their term is going to be up in a couple of years and you're going to wait and let them be ineffective for a couple of years. That's not necessarily bad. It's just kind of avoiding the problem and dealing with it later. Um, so to mitigate the chances of a member becoming ineffective, develop expectations in writing, Provide them to each potential board member before they accept. Once they're on the board, give them uh, orientation. Let them know clearly what the mission, organization, objectives are. Along the way, keep your board members updated on your work and get them involved in appropriate things and uh, committees, etc. And don't forget to conduct annual board evaluations to determine what's working and what's not working. Get involved in an annual evaluation process where your board is actually evaluating itself, saying, hey, here's how we're doing, here's what we can do better, let's do better in this area. So how important is a board assessment? They're designed to help us in the following ways. They should help us identify gaps and improve performance. They should hold the board accountable for its performance, offer an opportunity to communicate objectively, and for the chair, provide important feedback on leadership style and facilitation skills. So a board assessment helps the board. It helps the board chair. It helps everybody. Don't avoid doing it. There's plenty of stuff online. You just go online. You get one of these instruments. You download it. You give it to everybody. Let them fill it out. And you did it. It's not that hard to do. I encourage you to do it with your board. Okay. To make the evaluation most effective, 
make sure you get buy-in from the board. Don't just go off, do it yourself, but say, hey, we ought to do this evaluation together and encourage them to buy into it. Um, do some research, explore it, find a good instrument, and plan it out. Maybe you want to bring in a facilitator, someone to help you do it, and follow up the recommendations after you do it. Okay? You're going to learn some things, follow up, and, and see what you can learn and make it better. So, uh, I know we kind of did the uh, fire hose thing here today. We went pretty quickly through some of this. So, may God grant you wisdom. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.